Take your Bibles, turn with me to Joshua chapter 2. Continuing in our series in this great book of Joshua, we come to chapter 2. Probably a familiar story to most of you, the story of Rahab. Hear God's word. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that Yahweh has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by Yahweh that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when Yahweh gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills. Or the pursuers will encounter you and hide three, there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. And we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. They sh then she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. And the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly, Yahweh has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. We're all familiar, aren't we, with the shortest verse in the English Bible, John 11, verse 35, Jesus wept. But did you realize that in the Greek, 
1 Thessalonians 6, 6, 5, 16 is even shorter than John eleven thirty five. 35. What's 1 Thessalonians 5, 16? Rejoice always. And there's another verse that's in the top five of the shortest verses in the Bible that we're probably not as familiar with. It's Luke chapter 17, verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Now, why did Jesus want us to remember Lot's wife? Well, if you recall Luke 17, or if you go and you read it tonight, you'll see that it's because Lot's wife was an example of someone that we should not imitate. She is an example of someone who longed to preserve her life in this world, and so she lost it. Contrary to the angel's instructions, she looked back at Sodom with fondness, with longing, As she escaped from that city, as she was being rescued from that city, she looked back and she was turned into a pillar of salt. Remember Lot's wife, says Jesus. Well, this evening I want us to remember not someone who should not be imitated, but I want us to remember someone who should be imitated, Rahab the prostitute. It may sound odd to you for me to say that we should imitate a prostitute, but even though Jesus never said, remember Rahab, Yet through his brother James and through the author to the Hebrews, he might as well have. Because James and the author to the Hebrews commend Rahab. They commend her good example, particularly regarding her faith. And since Rahab in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is most often described as Rahab the prostitute, it's I want to suggest this evening that the stickiness of that label for her alerts us to the fact that we don't just need to remember Rahab, we also need to remember Rahab's God, who is a God of amazing grace. Because that God of amazing grace is who Rahab herself points us to in our text this evening. So I want us to look at her faith, but more than that, I want us to look at the one who is forever faithful. We're going to look at Rahab's faith under two headings. First, I want you to see the example of Rahab's faith. And then second, I want you to see the encouragement of Rahab's faith. So let's jump in first to look at the example of Rahab's faith. This story of Rahab and the two Israelite spies has captured the church's attention down through the centuries for a variety of reasons, right? If you don't know any other story from the book of Joshua, Chances are you know the story of Rahab. You've heard that story. Maybe you didn't even grow up reading the Bible or or in the church, but you probably somewhere in your cultural memory had heard of this lady named Rahab and and the story of her hiding the spies. As you see, Joshua, uh, on the other side of the Jordan River, sends these two men on a reconnaissance mission into Canaan, into Jericho. They are on a mission to spy out the land. They come into Jericho, they go into the house of a prostitute, not to hire her services, but likely as a way to blend in, a way to avoid detection. Certainly a prostitute's house would have been a place where travelers, you know, passing through the lands would have, would have been a frequent uh, visitors. And and so it would have maybe been a place where they could have avoided detection. But these spies seem to be as successful and secretive as the Chinese weather balloon that we just shot down yesterday, right? The very night that they enter in, they're, they're detected, right? They're found. They, the, the king of Jericho knows that they have come to Rahab's house. He sends his men, his soldiers, 
presumably, to, to confront her. Uh, she evidently had caught wind of, of their arrival, of their coming, and so she had hid the spies. And then she proceeds to tell the, the soldiers that they had left before the gates were shut. So if they hurry, they'll catch them. Now, the soldiers, uh, perhaps astoundingly, believe her. Right? She must have been a trustworthy and well-known prostitute in Jericho. Right? So they don't even search the house. They just take her word at face value. Once she leaves, once they leave, she goes up to the two spies and she speaks to these two Israelites, some of the most amazing words in all the Bible. Her profession of faith in verses 9 through 13 is the central section of this story, both from a, a literary standpoint, but also from a theological standpoint. And it's where the author of Joshua wants us to focus our attention, but not just the author of Joshua. It's also in the New Testament, the author to the Hebrews, as I said, and James, they guide us in interpreting and applying this story by pointing us to Rahab's faith as an example for us today. In Hebrews 10, verse 31, she's included in the great hall of faith. Excuse me, Hebrews 11, verse 31, she's included in the great hall of faith. In James chapter 2, verse 25, uh, she is included there uh, alongside of Abraham, the great father of the faith. She is mentioned as well as, as one who shows us that faith without works is dead, is not a living faith, not a real and genuine faith, but a dead faith. So, so her faith is set forth for us as an example. And what do we learn about faith in God? What do we learn about the God of our faith? from Rahab's profession? Well, several things. First, notice that Rahab believed the reports that she had heard of God's mighty acts. You see it there in verse 10. We have heard, she says, how the, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Rahab had heard something propositional, declarative about what God had done in space and time, both 40 years previously in Egypt, as well as more recently on the other side of the Jordan River. And, and Rahab's faith was grounded on this knowledge. She had heard truth declared. She had heard stories. She had heard of God's mighty deeds, and she believed. Now, we don't know exactly how she and the other Jerichoites had, had heard of these mighty deeds. Surely word had spread that this great mass of humanity was, was gathered on the other side of the Jordan River and, and it looked to be coming here. And they seemed to be a, a pretty successful bunch that they were led by a God who seemed to be on the winning side, right? He was the God who was going to be able to, to win any battle that was set before him. And so Rahab hears these stories just like the other folks in Jericho but Rahab believes that they are true. Rahab bases her faith upon the truthfulness of God's mighty deeds. And that's the way saving faith always is, brothers and sisters. It's grounded upon propositional truth. Statements of fact about God. Stories of what God has done. Rahab's an example for us in believing in God's mighty acts. But second, notice that, that she also believed that, that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was the supreme God. As she puts it in verse 11, he is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. 
This language is surprisingly only used two other times in the Bible. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, as Moses brings his early sermon there in Deuteronomy to a, a climax and calls on Israel to take it to heart that Yahweh is the only God, as well as in 1 Kings chapter 8, when Solomon prays the dedication of the temple, the great, the great dwelling place of God in the Old Covenant. So here is Rahab using language that is somewhat unique, and yet it's also throughout the whole Bible. That God is the God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. God is the supreme God, the majestic God. And by implication, he is the only God. Remember the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, that Paul says that they turn from idols to serve the living and true God. In the same way, Rahab is an example of Faith, saving faith, saving faith turns from the idols of our culture and acknowledges that Yahweh, the Lord God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit is the one true God, the living God, whom we must serve with all of our hearts. So Rahab sets this, this glorious example, not just of of believing propositional truth of God's mighty deeds, but also of recognizing that the Lord, he is God, the Lord alone is God of heaven and earth. Third, notice that she believed that the one true God was also a promise-keeping God of deliverance. She acknowledges to the spies that he had dried up the water of the Red Sea before the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. He had done that to deliver them, right, out of the hands of the Egyptians. But she also knew that, that he was going to deliver the land of Canaan into the Israelites' hands. We don't know how much she knew. Again, we don't know all the details that she knew, but, but here she is using the language of the patriarchal promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh had kept his promises, was giving the land to the people. You notice the sort of the past tense in which she speaks. I know the Lord has given you the land. It's yours. It, it, it belongs to you. And, and your victory over Sihon and Og on the other side of the Jordan River is, is just a foretaste of what you're about to do When you come into the land, the conquest is as good as done. It's all over but the shouting, as they say, right? It is your land. God has given it to you. He's fulfilled his word that we find in several places in Exodus and Deuteronomy that that fear and trembling would grip the, the hearts of the inhabitants of Canaan. Their hearts, she says, have melted away. You know, you're grabbing ice out of the fridge if your ice maker is broken like ours is. Right? You grab ice out of the fridge, inevitably ice lands, not in your cup, but on the ground. Right? And it's not picked up either, by the way. Um, and so like an ice cube on the kitchen floor, it just melts, right? And you slip in the puddle and you get angry at your kids. Right? This is, sorry, I don't even know why I'm talking about that. Um, <laughs> but that picture of hearts melting away, right? We've all seen ice melt. She uses this other picture. There's no spirit left in any man because of them, as if the breath has been knocked out of them, literally, is is what she's saying, right? There's no spirit, no breath left in them. The point is that that here are the Canaanites. They're they're completely demoralized. Why? Because God is a promise-keeping God, a God of deliverance and salvation. But notice, unlike the Canaanites, Rahab is not fearful. Rahab is fearless. She's full of faith. She's full of confidence and and courage. 
Francis Schaeffer, in his commentary on Joshua, uh, points out beautifully that, that, that in the face of an entire culture right, that was opposed to God all around her, right, in spite of this dominant worldview, that, 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 that there were multiple gods, right, and that that there were these gods would be to worship to be worshipped in, in sexual ways, and uh, that that this God Yahweh is, is not a god at all. Right here is Rahab believing in Yahweh, trusting in Yahweh, believing in His promises. Right? She could see those seemingly impregnable walls of Jericho that seemed that they would never fall. She couldn't see Yahweh. And yet she walked by faith and not by sight. She believed his word of promise. She submitted to him rather than the king of Jericho. And she clung to this truth that the God who had delivered Israel out of Egypt could also and would also deliver her and her family from his wrath, from his just destruction. And so in in response to all that she has come to know about God, what is she doing here with these spies but casting herself on the mercy of God, pleading with the spies to save her, to deal kindly with her and with her family, even as she has dealt kindly with them. That, that little word in the ESV, dealt kindly, is, is the use of the word hesed. God's loving kindness and steadfast love could also be used in, in human relations. She, she's essentially saying, look, I've, I've shown you loyal and faithful love and, and kindness. And now, may you, may your God deal kindly, deal with hesed toward me. You see, her faith is clinging to the one and the only God, pleading with him to be who he has promised to be, to be a God kind, full of loving kindness to those who put their trust in him. And again, this is an example for us of, of saving faith into every cultural headwind against the grain of every dominant believing, unbelieving worldview. Faith believes that God is a God who will always keep his promises. He will save the ones who cry out to him for mercy. But we see a fourth little picture, don't we, of, of faith, particularly in the New Testament. Rahab's faith is exemplary, not merely because she's believed what she's heard about God's mighty acts and because she's believed that God is the supreme God and only God and believed that he's a promise-keeping God of deliverance. But fourth and finally, her faith is exemplary because it was a faith that worked, a faith that worked, that manifested itself in concrete actions, that proved its genuineness by its fruit. This is what Hebrews 11 and James 2 were seeking to bring out. Listen to Hebrews 11:31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And then in James 2, in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? See, Rahab is set forth for us as, as a woman of faith who showed hospitality to God's people, who protected these spies by re refusing to betray them, by getting them out of the city through her window, by directing them away from the soldiers. Right? These daring acts of love and of loyalty showed that she was a changed woman, a transformed woman, and that she was willing to be identified with, to align herself with Yahweh, with his people at great risk and danger to herself and her own life. And we too, like Rahab, are called to believe in this same God that she believed in, to walk in an active faith, even as she walked 
and an active faith. John Blanchard, a a commentator on the book of James, puts it like this, a woman who had ruined her life with lust at its lowest now reveals her faith by love at its highest. Her faith is, is an exemplary faith. We see this beautiful example set forth both in the Old and the New Testaments. That brings us to the second point, the encouragement of Rahab's faith. It's an example to us of what faith looks like and what a faithful God is. But it's also an encouragement to us. Clearly, her faith was an encouragement to the spies and to Joshua and to everyone else who would have heard this story. Right after the spies spent the three days up in the hills to the west of Jericho to avoid meeting the soldiers as they returned from the Jordan River and the fords back, right? they, once they know those, those soldiers had come back to, to Jericho, they, they, they sneak out of the mountains, uh, they, they pass Jericho, they go across the Jordan River back to Joshua, and they tell them everything that had happened to them. And, and the text tells us that they, they give a report that was very similar to the report that Joshua and Caleb had given to Moses back in Numbers chapter 14. Uh, they say, truly, Yahweh has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. You see, Rahab's confession of faith, her report of the situation on the ground in Jericho, certainly it is the source of their assessment, isn't it? Her faith has strengthened their faith in God's word. Surely it bolstered the morale of the forces of, of Israel. It reminds me of the, the great story in Judges chapter 7 when God tells Gideon uh, to go into uh, the camp of the Midianites with his 300 men. But God also tells Gideon this, if you're afraid to go down to the camp of the Midianites, then go down with your servant, you and he, by yourself, right? And you will hear what they say, God says to Gideon. And afterward, your hands will be strengthened that you may go down against the camp. And so Gideon, who is fearful, does go down by himself with his servant. And when he gets there, he hears a man talking to his fellow soldier about a dream that he'd had that very night. And he says, behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian. And it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell. And it turned it upside down so the tent lay flat. And the friend, the fellow soldier, replies to, to this other Midianite, that is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. As you can imagine, Gideon's like, this is amazing. Like, like we are going to win this battle. And so he goes back, and the text verse says that he worships the Lord, and he goes back into camp uh, and communicates the dream and the interpretation of it. His fears have disappeared. Well, in the same way, that's what God was doing for Joshua and for the Israelites. And it's what he's doing for us this evening as well, some 3,400 years later after these events happened. Because Rahab's faith is an encouragement. It teaches us even more about who our God is. He's a God who saves foreigners. He's a God who saves foreigners. Look, you and I, we are Gentiles, right? And therefore, Rahab is to us, if we assume sort of a 25-year generation, she is like our 136th great-grandmother, right, in the faith. She, like us, was a foreigner. Her life is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises, both from Abraham 12 and excuse me, from Genesis 12 and Genesis 22. Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, all the nations will be blessed in you. 
In Genesis 22, he, he says, all the nations will be blessed in your seed. Well, here, our God, this missionary God, has fulfilled his promises in the, the person of Rahab. All the nations, even the, the Canaanites, are blessed in Abraham and in his seed. Now, maybe you read the text, and especially as we go on in Joshua, you say, well, wait a minute. All right, how are the Canaanites blessed in their being hardening against Israel and, 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 and standing forth against the Israelites and God's destroying them through Israel? Well, of course, the answer is those who resisted were not blessed. In fact, the opposite. They were cursed. They were under the ban, as, as Rahab says. Right? They were under the righteous judgment of God. But here's the thing you have to see. Through their being cleared out of the land, what is God doing but establishing his people in their place so that the Christ, the Messiah, might be born, might come into the world at just the right time. God is preparing the land by getting the Canaanites out. But even here in Canaan, you see that God has a remnant. God has his elect that he saves by grace. And here's the amazing thing about Rahab. What do we learn in Matthew chapter 1? But that after she was brought into the kingdom, she and her family, she wasn't married, right? She talked about her father, her mother, her family, her brothers and sisters, right? But when she comes into the kingdom, Matthew 1 tells us that she married Salmon, who was the son of, of Nashon, a prince of the tribe of Judah. And with Salmon, she gave birth to Boaz. And through Boaz came Obed, and from Obed came Jesse, and from Jesse came David. In God's providence, Rahab is in the lineage of the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, the seed of the woman who will come and crush the serpent's head. She is part of the ancestry of Jesus. Now here's the other kind of amazing thing that I had never seen this before. So she gives birth to Boaz, which means that when Ruth marries Boaz, Ruth's mother-in-law is Naomi and Rahab, assuming she's still alive at that point. Could you imagine the conversation between these two foreigners, Rahab the Canaanite, the Jerichoite, and Ruth the Moabitess who had come into the kingdom, both of them, it's amazing. Her mother-in-law is Rahab. How glorious that God in his providence saw fit to include these two foreign women in the lineage of King Jesus. Here we are getting ready for our missions festival in these next couple of weeks, all right? Have Rahab's conversion ringing in your ears. Our God is a missionary God. He saves foreigners still, but he's also a God who saves sinners. Rahab clearly, the text tells us, was a prostitute selling her body for money, defiling herself sexually. She was an idolater. She lived in Jericho. She was very possibly guilty of lying, even here in this story. Now, I wish I had more time. We'll, 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 I'll give as much detail as I can give, but uh, she clearly deceived the, the king's men. But commentaries are divided as to, to whether this deception constitutes a violation of the ninth commandment. It's a controversial ethical question that continues to be a live one, even in our own day and age in various places and times. Older theologians like Calvin and uh, Augustine, uh, they argued that uh, though Rahab's lie was for a good purpose to save life, yet it was still a lie. It was sinful 
in itself. It was sinful in the sight of God. It needed God's forgiveness. John Calvin writes this. He says, those who hold what is called a dutiful lie to be altogether excusable do not sufficiently consider how precious truth is in the sight of God. Therefore, he says, although our purpose be to assist our brethren to consult for their safety and relieve them, it can never be lawful to lie because that cannot be right which is contrary to the nature of God, and God is truth, says Calvin. So these commentators observe that when Rahab is commended in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's not for lying, right? but it's for the faith that led her to receive the spies, to hide them, to protect them, and to send them out by another way. Now, more recent commentators, on the other hand, they put Rahab's deception in a category of a situation where there is no expectation of the truth, sort of like fishing lures, right? Or, you know, uh, uh, blinds and, and, and or think, you think like sports, you know, like a fake handoff, right? Uh, a Statue of Liberty play, uh, as opposed to a flop in basketball, right? Technical foul, if you flop, if you fake, you know, fake getting fouled, you, you know, you're getting a technical, right? Because that's against the rules. Whereas, you know, faking a shot or, you know, a pump fake in basketball or a fake handoff, th those things are, are, are not against the rules of the game. Or, or we think even of like military deception. David uh, sending Hushai to be a mole in Absalom's court in, in 2 Samuel. Or, or Joshua himself in chapter 8 is going to have a false retreat and, and, and then an, an ambush set up. So uh, these commentators would say that either Rahab's lie is considered you know, part of the game of warfare since she is, uh, has gone over to the other side, the side of the Israelites, or her lie is viewed as, as committed against an enemy of God who, who has no obligation of receiving the truth, right? Because they're unjustly seeking innocent life. Either case, these commentators would say, not a violation of the ninth commandment. Uh, now, you say, well, where do I find myself? I, I would say that right now I, I lean toward the, the, the first, uh, the older interpretation, uh, in part because I think it's, it's very easy to, to rationalize lying on the, uh, the part of, of the, the newer interpretation. Uh, but I do, don't want to deny that there are situations in which deception is not lying, just like we think of killing in war as not murder, right? Uh, and, and yet, I would say that uh, with regard to Rahab's action, it is a sin that is forgiven for Christ's sake. But here's the thing. The Bible neither approves nor disapproves of Rahab's deceit in either the Old Testament or the New Testament. It essentially just ignores it. And so I'm content to leave this as a question that we don't have to answer, we don't have to agree on. Uh, whether you think Rahab's lie was a sin or not, uh, we can all agree that Rahab was a prostitute, that she was an idolater, uh, and that she clearly in other points of her life violated the ninth commandment, right? And indeed, she broke every one of the, the Ten Commandments. The point is this. God saves sinners through faith in his power and in his mercy. In Joshua 11, verse 20, we read that the Lord hardened the hearts of the Canaanites so that they might meet Israel in battle and receive no mercy but be destroyed justly receiving what they deserved. But with Rahab, it's the opposite. God is softening her heart to believe in him, to seek refuge under the shadow of his wings, receiving the mercy that she does not deserve, the protection of God from his wrath. That protection for Rahab comes in because in faith, she ties this scarlet cord in the window through which she let the spies down. 
Again, we come into this controversial point. Some commentators going all the way back to Clement in the first century of the church have seen this red cord as a type, as a prophecy of the, the red blood of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, it makes me nervous because there's nowhere in the, the New Testament that, that, that gives any hint that this is some sort of a, a connection that we ought to make. So I'm hesitant to make it. Uh, I would argue the color is just coincidental. It just happens to be red and blood happens to be red. And yet other preachers would say, no, it's a type of the blood of Jesus. Well, here's where I, I do feel comfortable saying. Clearly, the cord hung in the window serves the same function as the blood of the lamb that was put over the doors in the Passover. That is, if you are inside this house where this blood is over the door, or to Rahab, if you are inside this house where this cord is hung, you will be safe. You will be protected. You will be spared the destruction and the wrath of God. And so in this sense, there is perhaps an indirect connection to the blood of Christ because it's serving that same function of protection from the very wrath of God. The point is this, Jesus Christ is the one who bears the wrath of God on behalf of sinners who deserve nothing but his wrath. All of us are sinners deserving God's wrath. All of us are prostitutes. All of us are unfaithful to our creator. All of us are in need of mercy and grace and the refuge that can only come by taking refuge in Jesus Christ and his cross. All of us deserve to be put under the ban. But if we look to Christ, to the one who himself was put under the ban, who was cursed for us, then when we cry out to him for mercy, we will be saved, even as Rahab was saved. Do you see the encouragement of Rahab's faith? If Rahab can be saved, there is good news for all of us. None of us need to despair. If she was a sinner and was saved by grace through faith, ultimately in Jesus Christ, even as we've confessed this evening, then all of us who cry to Jesus Christ, who look to him, none of us need to despair. If we look to Christ in faith, he will save you. He will cleanse you from the guilt of your sin. Even as he cleansed Rahab, from the guilt of her sin. He will cleanse you from the power of your sin, even as he cleansed Rahab from the power of her sin. But if you refuse to cry out to Christ, if you harden your heart, then instead of receiving refuge and protection and salvation, you will receive exactly what all the other Canaanites receive, the just punishment of God. The Savior will not be a Savior to you. He will be a judge to you. And so, brothers and sisters, I call us all to saving faith, faith like Rahab's, that believes in the, the God of Rahab, the God of Israel, that understands that this missionary God, this saving God, a God who saves sinners, is calling to us this evening to put our trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this glorious story of Rahab. Lord, thank you for the fact that one day we will have a chance to meet her, to hear even more of all that she heard and experienced. Lord, we thank you for this woman of faith. We thank you for you, the faithful God, for being who you are. Lord, would you help us to believe, help us to trust, help us, O oh Lord, to be bold in our proclaiming of, of you to our lost neighbors. Lord, be pleased to soften hard hearts. Be pleased, we pray, to 
bring in all the elect. Father, even through our witness, through our testimony, open the ears that are sealed, open the eyes that are blind. Lord, we pray that you would show mercy upon the nations. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.